You're listening to the Maritime History Podcast, and I'm your host, Brandon Hubner, bringing you the latest installment, Episode 8, The Middle Kingdom Mariners. Thanks for tuning in once again, and to start us off today, I wanted to take just a moment to specifically thank everyone who's left a review of the podcast on iTunes to this point. Hitting subscribe and leaving a review or rating are the best ways to help boost our rankings in the iTunes charts. So thanks a bunch to the following subscribers. Andrew Mentz, Regenerazioni, Comrade Loganov, Groundhog55, Eponine4, Lairbear7, Mike Piggy Mac, Maybe Soon, Charles Vashin, Antonio Rodriguez, AM Post, Gorgol Petron, and Doctor Who DDS, which is an awesome username, by the way. I think that covers everyone, but it's a little hard to track reviews across iTunes' various regions, so if I accidentally left your name off the list, let me know, and I'll be sure to mention you in a future episode. Right before we jump into the subject matter for today, I wanted to plug a show that recently launched. That's the History of Pirates podcast. This podcast is put together by Captain Craig Buddy, and having heard the first few episodes, I would highly recommend the podcast to you if you've ever been interested in pirates even once, which I hope covers just about everyone. So basically, just subscribe. I think the History of Pirates podcast will be a good companion to our podcast here, since Craig Buddy will likely cover pirate-related matters in more detail than I will. I'll try to cover other aspects in more detail, so I'm sure there will be times where our narratives cross paths, and hopefully the pirate crew will spare our lives, for history's sake anyway. If you want to join up with Craig Buddy's pirate crew, look for links to the website and the podcast on the episode page for our episode here today. Alright, when we left off, the Old Kingdom had collapsed and the First Intermediate Period had begun. There is very little evidence of maritime activity from this period, but let's take a brief look at the synopsis of events from the First Intermediate Period, and we'll get a good idea why there isn't much in the way of maritime evidence. Following Pepi II's death, there was a drought, the Nubians waged a war to gain their independence from Egyptian control, and the Egyptian government had become highly unstable because of Pepi's long reign. All these circumstances culminated in a long dispute over succession to the throne. The 7th and 8th dynasties were periods of relative impotence for the pharaohs. Only one of them managed to hold on to the throne for longer than a year, and that same pharaoh, Ibi, was the only one who managed to complete a monument in his own honor. Far had the pharaohs fallen from the decadence of the old kingdom. After the 8th dynasty, Egypt reverted back to the regional power bases that had been the main players before Narmer originally unified Upper and Lower Egypt. Those who controlled Lower Egypt were loosely confederated under the leadership of a ruler from the town of Heracleopolis, and they're considered to be the start of the 10th dynasty. The 11th dynasty, though, was partially concurrent with the 10th, and was made up of rival rulers who controlled Upper Egypt with their overlord exercising his control from the province of Thebes. As I said earlier, we don't have much evidence of maritime matters from the first intermediate period, but this period came to an end when a Theban ruler 
named Mentuhotep II, emerged victorious from a civil war. After leading the Theban provinces to victory against Heracleopolis, Mentuhotep II began consolidating his power over both Upper and Lower Egypt, effectively reunifying Egypt and ushering in the Middle Kingdom. As we transition into the maritime history of Egypt's Middle Kingdom, we'll take a look at archaeological evidence and the ancient depictions of boats as we have been doing thus far. But one thing that sets the Middle Kingdom apart is the rise of literature as an art form. While artifacts and depictions give us good insight into the technicalities of maritime history, literary works, such as The Tale of the Shipwrecked Sailor, give us some of our earliest glimpses into the imaginations of ancient Egyptian sailors and the everyday citizens who wondered what lay outside the Nile Valley. In today's episode, we're going to look at a few artifacts from the Middle Kingdom, and then one literary piece that relates to maritime history. First, a landmark early in the Middle Kingdom concerns an explorer named Hanu, who was the first to reopen the trade routes with both Libya and the land of Punt, after Pharaoh Mentuhotep III ordered him to take ships from the Nile and make the trek over 100 miles east across the Wadi that led to the shores of the Red Sea. The following inscription, found inscribed on the rocky walls of Wadi Hammamat, reveals Hanu's pride at having fulfilled the pharaoh's orders and having defeated his opposition along the way. His holiness sent me to dispatch a ship to Punt to bring for him fresh myrrh from the sheiks over the red land by reason of the fear of him in the highlands. Then I went forth from Koptos upon the road which his majesty commanded me. There was with me an army of the south. Every office of the king's house, those who were in town and field, united, came after me. The army, I cleared the way before, overthrowing those hostile toward the king. The hunters and the children of the highlands were posted as the protection of my limbs. Every official body of his majesty was placed under my authority. They reported messengers to me as one alone commanding, to whom many hearken. I went forth with an army of three thousand men. I made the road a river, and the red land a stretch of field, for I gave a leathern bottle, a carrying pole, two jars of water, and twenty loaves to each one among them every day. The asses were laden with sandals. Now I made twelve wells in the bush, and two wells in Idahet, twenty square cubits in one, and thirty-one square cubits in the other. I made another in Eheteb, twenty by twenty cubits on each side. Then I reached the Red Sea. Then I made the ship, and I dispatched it with everything, when I had made for it a great oblation of cattle, bulls, and ibexes. Now, after my return from the Red Sea, I executed the command of his majesty, and I brought for him all the gifts which I had found in the regions of God's land, or Punt. I returned through the valley of Hamamat. I brought for him august blocks for statues belonging to the temple. Never was brought down the like thereof for the king's court. Never was done the like of this by any king's confidant, sent out since the time of the god. I did this for the majesty of my lord, because so much he loved me. 
Now, aside from the significance of the fact that Hanu reopened some of the important trade routes to Egypt's east, trade routes that had been significant during the Old Kingdom, there's also an interesting line from this inscription that may allude to something that we've already seen before. The line where Hanu states that he made the road a river has been seen as possibly alluding to the Egyptian practice of building their seagoing vessels in the Nile Valley and then disassembling them, carrying them east across the wadi of their choice, and reassembling them for use on the Red Sea. If this is indeed the idea that Hanu intended to convey by that line, it's an apt turn of phrase that captures the commercial functions of roadways, both on solid ground and in the water. Before we jump over to another of our main items for today's episode, let's take a minute to look at a debate about an event that may or may not have occurred during a time frame near Hanu's expedition at the beginning of the Middle Kingdom. The Middle Kingdom began somewhere in the vicinity of 2000 BC, give or take. If we assume that Hanu did indeed conduct his expeditions during the reign of Mentuhotep III, then that places their occurrence somewhere near 1950 BC. Our debated event is claimed by the famous Greek geographer-slash-historian Strabo to have occurred during the reign of Senusret III, a pharaoh who reigned in the latter half of the 1800s BC, well into the 12th dynasty. In his famous work Geographica, Strabo claims that Senusret III oversaw the cutting of a canal that connected the northern part of the Nile River with the Red Sea. This canal would, in classical times, become known as the Canal of the Pharaohs, and the benefit of such a canal is obvious, as it would eliminate the need for overland caravans to haul goods and disassembled ships the distance from the Red Sea westward back to the Nile. What's more, we have a great deal of evidence to suggest that there was indeed a canal between the two bodies of water in the vicinity that Strabo claimed it to have been located. The main problem, though, is not whether the canal existed, but when it was first dug in a way that fully connected the Red Sea with the Nile. While Strabo claims the 19th century BC for the date of its construction, Herodotus instead claims that the canal wasn't fully constructed until the 6th century BC, when Pharaoh Neku II oversaw its creation. The difference between these two dates is about 1,200 years, so that's a big gap in timing. While it would be interesting to claim such an early date for the construction of an ancient precursor of the Suez Canal, the preponderance of the evidence indicates that the canal wasn't constructed in full until the 6th century date that Herodotus claimed, if even that early. Herodotus does indeed recognize the fact that Senusret III constructed canals, but he implies that these canals were smaller offshoots of the Nile, used for local purposes, rather than the single gargantuan project to radically alter the way Egypt communed with the Red Sea. Debate still continues about when exactly the Canal of the Pharaohs was first completed, and some still maintain that it was never fully finished until the time of the Ptolemaic dynasties. In the end, regardless of whether Senesret did or didn't actually complete the canal, our next item for today gives us a unique perspective on Egypt's connection with the Red Sea, and the land of Punt, a land that we've encountered on several occasions now. 
The tale of the shipwrecked sailor is generally seen as being the oldest written shipwreck narrative. It's ostensibly the account of a shipwreck survivor, and although it reveals a little more about how Egypt viewed the mythical or not-so-mythical land of Punt, and it gives us one of the earliest examples of sailors being able to forecast the weather while at sea, the contents of the tale also veer off into the realm of the fantastical, forcing us to have to look for the line between reality and fantasy. If you're interested in hearing the tale in its entirety, I've recorded it as a supplementary episode in connection with this one, so it will show up in the feed as any normal episode would. I've named it episode 8.5 to distinguish it, so if you don't care that much about the story, feel free to skip it. Either way, though, let's go over a bare-bones summary of the tale, as taken from Lionel Casson's classic work, The Ancient Mariners. I had set out for the Mines of the King, the anonymous storyteller relates, in a ship 180 feet long and 60 feet wide. We had a crew of 120, the pick of Egypt. The mines must be those in the Sinai Peninsula, so the departure was made from some Red Sea port. The ship's size is imposing. It was no little coaster, but a full-fledged cargo vessel. A storm broke while we were still at sea, he continues. We flew before the wind. The ship went down. Of all in it, only I survived. I was cast upon an island and spent three days alone. I stayed in the shade. Then I set forth to find what I could put in my mouth. I found figs and vines, all kinds of fine leeks, fruit and cucumbers. There were fish and fowl. Everything was there. I satisfied myself, and there was still some left over. When I had made a fire drill, I kindled a fire and made a burnt offering for the gods. So far, nothing that we couldn't find in the pages of Robinson Crusoe. But things suddenly change. Then I heard the sound of thunder and thought it was a wave. Trees broke and the earth quaked. I uncovered my face and found that a serpent had drawn near. It was forty-five feet long, and its beard was two feet long. Its body was covered with gold, and its eyebrows were real lapis lazuli. The serpent's looks, it turns out, were deceiving. It was a most considerate and accommodating creature. It took the sailor up in its mouth tenderly, carried him to its lair, listened sympathetically to his story, and then comforted him with the news that, after four comfortable months on the island, one of the pharaoh's ships would come along, pick him up, and carry him home. In gratitude, the sailor burst out with a promise to bring it thank offerings of all sorts of incense. Thereupon it laughed at me, and it said, I am the prince of Punt, and myrrh that is my very own. As is to confirm these words, when the rescue ship, as prophesied, did come along, the serpent sent the sailor off with a full cargo of incense of every conceivable type. Two months later, he was safely home. That's a basic summary of the tale. And even though this tale of shipwreck and salvation may sound trite to us 4,000 years after it was committed to writing, it's significant for both its age and what it tells us about how the Middle Kingdom Egyptians viewed and related to the sea. 
Obviously, there are quite a few interpretational barriers in our way as we try to fully understand this tale. For instance, what were the origins of the story? Was it meant to be a purely historical account or a purely allegorical account? If it isn't purely one or the other, then which parts of the story are which? As with many pieces of ancient literature, we really don't know. Various theories have been bandied about, all leading to different conclusions. I'll highlight just a few points that, in my view, tip the scale in favor of viewing this ancient tale as more allegorical than literal. Although, as we've seen, the land of Punt was probably a physical location to which Egyptians sailed at various points in their history, so the tale may have some connection to an actual voyage. First off, the tale of the shipwrecked sailor contains no names with which to identify the characters, not even the name for the story's narrator, the sailor who was shipwrecked. Were this the tale intended to commemorate an actual event, as many Egyptian tales seem more so to have been, then it would be expected for the narrator to share his name, and the names of the other people involved in the story. A second point that weighs in favor of a non-literal interpretation can be seen in the conversations that the sailor has with the serpent after he's stranded on the island. Without going into detail, the conversations focus not purely on rescue or geographical points, but also on points of morality, human nature, and whether or not fate or a deity was to blame for the sailor's shipwreck. The lack of names and the moralizing tone of the conversations between the sailor and the serpent add up to a conclusion that this tale wasn't intended as a history, even if it was originally based on a sailor who shipwrecked. And aside from those points, I think the presence of a giant talking serpent within the narrative should also give us a bit of a hint. Although we can't precisely date the tale of a shipwrecked sailor, it's an indicator that Egypt's focus had again turned to foreign trade and expeditions by the early Middle Kingdom. That trade began early on, as we saw with Hanu, but other evidence comes from timbers excavated near the pyramid of Senusret I at El Lisht, which give us evidence that Egyptians were again using local wood to construct ships with varying styles of mortise and tenon joints. Everyday boats, and even funerary boats, were also still in use, as can be seen by the growing prevalence of miniature boat models that were buried with various persons during the Middle Kingdom period. Several pristine examples come from the tomb of a man named Meketra, who served as both chancellor and as high steward under at least two different Middle Kingdom pharaohs. I'll include photos of several of these boat models on the website, so be sure to check them out to see the exquisite examples of miniature boat models from the Middle Kingdom. In addition to the boat models, there's also inscription evidence from four copper chests that were found hidden in the foundations of a temple near Thebes. These chests bore the engraved name of Amenhemat II, a 12th dynasty pharaoh who succeeded Senusret I. Inside, they carried a wealthy treasure of various objects from around the ancient world, including lapis lazuli from Mesopotamia and silver cups that are identical in design to cups that were designed on Minoan Crete. Leaving aside the maritime connections of the Minoans for a future episode, 
Although, as we just saw, they had some type of connection with Egypt very early in their history. The most important inscribed evidence for maritime activity in the Middle Kingdom comes from a stone block in Memphis that contains the annals of Amenhemat II. On this block, among many other things, there is mention of at least two separate military voyages to a region that's been identified as modern-day Lebanon, the ancient regions the Egyptians called Byblos. The annals record the ships of both expeditions as returning with a wide variety of spoils, ranging from thousands of prisoners and tons of precious metal to pine resin and the ever-coveted timber from the Lebanese cedar forests. One voyage mentioned in the inscription seems to have returned with a large concentration of both bronze and malachite, leading scholars to conclude that the Egyptian expedition may have reached to the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. When we consider the fact that the annals of Amenhemat II that mention maritime voyages are all contained to one single year of his reign, it opens the door to the possibility that both during his reign and during those of other Middle Kingdom pharaohs, Egypt was busy with maritime expeditions to the Levant and likely to other locales in the eastern Mediterranean. Sadly, little clear-cut evidence of seagoing ships has been linked to the Middle Kingdom period, and almost all maritime artifacts that have been discovered thus far are of smaller, riverine vessels. Recent excavations at Red Sea sites have uncovered some fragmentary evidence of seagoing vessels, particularly at a site called Wadi Gawasis, so maybe more will be found in the coming years. For now, though, the best physical maritime evidence from the Middle Kingdom comes from six boat pits that were discovered outside the Pyramid of Senusret III in the years between 1893 and 1895. Senusret III reigned at the height of the 12th dynasty and the Middle Kingdom as a whole. He gained a reputation as a warrior pharaoh who waged several campaigns against Nubia and built a series of fortresses there, marking the southern boundary of Egypt's control. The boats discovered in these pits next to his pyramid at Dasher are now known as the Dasher boats, and have been variously interpreted, though many now think that they could have been funeral boats like the Khufu ships. The Dasher boats are much smaller than the completed Khufu ship, each one measuring it at around 30 feet long, 8 feet wide, and only 4 feet high. If these are indeed Senusret III's funerary boats, then the drastic size difference between the Khufu ship and the Dasher boats could signal either that Egypt's perception of what an ideal boat for the afterlife was had changed, or maybe simply the resources prevented the construction of larger ships. Regardless of the reason, it's apparent that the Dasher boats, while smaller than previous funerary boats, also show evidence of improvement in construction technique. Cross beams are a prominent feature of the boats, providing internal support for the outer shell. Rather than lashing the planks together to hold the mortise and tenon joints secure, the Dasher boats also contain dovetail clamps that secure the planks together from inside the hull. There's some debate about whether these dovetail clamps were original features of the ship's construction, or whether they were possibly added at a later date. 
but hard proof of the clamp's date of origin is impossible. In any event, the boats were masterfully built using imported cedar, and their decoration is what has led several scholars to conclude that they were funerary vessels. Originally, they were all decorated with red, black, and blue lines on top of a white or green background. The rudder stanchions had representations of hawks' heads on their upper ends, and the rudders themselves were painted with flowers and eyes. After Sinistret III was buried with his boats at Dasher, somewhere in the vicinity of 1800 BC, he was succeeded by Amenhemat III. He reigned for almost 50 years, an inordinately long reign in the context of ancient Egyptian pharaohs. As with Pepi II's long reign that ushered in the first intermediate period, Amenhemat III's long reign led to a succession struggle that drastically weakened Egypt's central government and power structures. Amenhemat III was succeeded by either his grandson or stepson, a pharaoh who became the fourth to bear the same name. His short reign was largely a failure, and a drought further contributed to Egypt's instability. The last pharaoh of the Middle Kingdom was Sobek Neferu, the first historically attested female king of Egypt. Unfortunately for her, her reign was also short-lived, and when she died with no heirs around 1750 BC, Egypt entered its second intermediate period, another time of relative disconnection between Egypt and its foreign neighbors. It was at this same relative historical juncture that Hammurabi died, and the Mesopotamian sea trade began to wane, in addition to the shrinking influence of the Indus Valley civilization. Now that we've reached the second intermediate period, next time we'll move forward to look at the maritime evidence that crops up after Egypt rises again, and transitions into the New Kingdom period. I anticipate that we'll spend at least one episode on the early New Kingdom maritime history, and then I hope to dedicate one episode, maybe more, to the mysterious group known as the Sea Peoples, and detail their interactions with the Mediterranean world, including Egypt. One last reminder to check out the supplementary episode 8.5 if you're interested in hearing the entire tale of the shipwrecked sailor. But feel free to ignore it if that sounds like a bore. That wraps it up for today. Connect with us on social media and the website to keep up to date on the latest developments. Check out the History of Pirates podcast. And until next time, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast.